This is Bethany Hughes for the National Trust. I'm making my way by ferry to a little island off the Suffolk coast. Now, this isn't your typical National Trust site. There's no stately home or carefully cultivated garden to see. Instead, I'm looking out at the windswept North Sea and the most incredible shingle spit, which stretches for about 10 miles in front of me. This is, as it happens, the best preserved area of vegetated shingle in Britain and a site of continental significance in terms of the conservation of birds and plants and insects. But this almost otherworldly landscape is also home to an internationally significant past, one which involves radar experimentation, global conflict and even atomic weaponry. What went on here impacted on the course of human history. Welcome to the strange, unexpected world of Orford Ness. Here to help me unravel the mysteries of Orfordness, so Grant Lahore, Coast and Countryside Manager. Hi, Grant. Best me. Hi, Benley. Nice to meet you. Lovely to meet you. And you must be Stuart. I am. Welcome. Uh, Welcome to Orford. Thank you so much. This is Stuart Warrington, who's a wildlife advisor for the Trust. So, I see you have a trusty Land Rover ready for me. It sounds like we're going to do some serious deep countryside. Yep, we're going off into the great unknown, really. So, if we load up, we can get on our way. Perfect. Sounds good. Across the 20th century, access to Orfordness was denied to the public because here the military engaged in top-secret research and development. Even today, we don't know exactly what went on on the island. But in June 1995, the National Trust opened up Orfordness, recognising that this was a place of global significance, both environmentally and historically. What I can see in front of me is a yeah. concrete road stretching straight in towards the middle of the island. It looks a bit like a Roman road, actually, it's so straight. Yeah. Who built this? Well, this would have been built probably by one of the engineering regiments out here in the First World War. The War Office bought the site in August 1913, but it wasn't really until 1915 that the work started to go ahead on developing what was known as the Orford Ness Research Station. I can see, Stuart, you're itching to show me a bit of wildlife. I can see you pointing out of the window. What's that over there? Well, if we just come to a halt here, because you're right in the middle of this area called Airfield Marsh. Now, recently we finished a four-year EU life project we've had on the site to create a whole series of pools and lagoons and ditches so that this area is a little less of an airfield now and a little bit more of a mixture of the historic element of the airfield, like this concrete track, and some fantastic shallow pools full of bird life. Now we've just gone past some little egrets, there's some oyster catchers over there, there's some shell duck over there, and in the winter time this place is just alive with wildfowl and waders. The wildlife that we have now are probably here 
because of what happened here rather than despite it because of course it wasn't disturbed it wasn't ploughed up and it wasn't turned into anything other than an area which largely people were excluded from and birds and mammals don't tend to worry about bangs too much which is a lot of what went on here but they are disturbed by people and things going on around them and I think it's a good example of nature being opportunistic and reclaiming the site again. That's a very positive paradox, isn't it? That, as you say, yes. it was set aside for military practice yep. and training, and ironically, that's made it a sanctuary for nature. Well, I can see some rather intriguing built man-made structures ahead of me. Can we, can we go and investigate those? Yeah, we're going to go straight to one of them now. We've just gone past a sign, Grant, yes. that says, Danger, MOD, keep out. Is, is that an old sign? No, it is an old one, but part of our sort of philosophy of how we display the site to the public as well as, as protect the site is we're trying to really show a redundant, derelict military test site, which, of course, is exactly what it is. So we've tried to retain as much as possible the various bits, like old fence line to our left here, which was part of the security fence that originally completely enclosed the whole site. But yes, it's really about recognising its value for its nature conservation, but of course also for its cultural history, because that's incredibly important too. At its height then, how many people would have been living here? There were several peaks, but probably around a thousand people may have been out here at any one time. And certainly in the First World period, we also have a German prisoner of war camp and a Chinese labour corps as well. But interesting, isn't it? So kind of both by chance and by design, this place was far from being at the edge of things. It was really cosmopolitan. It certainly was. And certainly a lot of the work here really spread throughout the world. And from quite early times, it was much more focused around Europe, of course. But latterly, with the atomic weapons testing, many of the people that worked here went out to Christmas Island, went out to Australia for the live trials and the other experiments. So yes, it's one of those places that within the UK almost nobody's heard of, and yet you can go around the world and people know it. It is slightly strange hearing all of this though, because it's so peaceful here. Hmm. It feels like there is such harmony really in the landscape, and yet it's got a very belligerent human history. certainly has. I mean, in the early days when we were trying to get our own heads around what we were doing here and what the site was about, and we came up with this idea that to the public a visit to Orford Ness should be a safe but not necessarily a comfortable one. Mm. So it was that sort of ethical, moral side of it of actually this site was about effectively killing people. Mm. There have also been very constructive activities here though, haven't there? Because I know there's a lighthouse and a coast guard's lookout. And isn't it right that this was where the first underwater telegraph cable was laid across to Holland? I mean, right back in the middle of the 19th century. It was, yes. It came ashore just slightly to the north of where the lighthouse stands today. And I suppose it was a very early link across to mainland Europe. So I've walked into what's not quite an empty space. There are some rather ghostly tables and chairs all covered in cobwebs. Grant, this is like a (laughs) film set in here, amazing. It it, it is a bit. It's sort of a very ordinary building, really, with an amazing history. In 1935, two gentlemen arrived on Orford Ness on a visit, and their names were Robert Watson Watt and Arnold Wilkins. 
and as we now know they were really the pioneers of the development of what we now know as radar. This is the receiver building. The one just across to our left up here in the distance there was the transmitter building. Extraordinary to think of the brain work that went on in here to create radar yeah. and the impact radar's it, had on human life. It was lives. massive, yeah. I came in here one day with Professor Robin Hanbury-Brown, who was one of the first radar team, describing the very first time that they saw an aircraft on their screen. And they rang round the various air stations and eventually discovered that an aircraft had flown by from the naval air station at Felixstowe, just down the coast. And he said that was the moment when it all changed from what it might do or what it should do to what it does, and that just revolutionised the whole process. I think you can almost smell it in the air here. I don't know if I'm being yeah. fanciful in this building, but do you yeah. know what I mean? It feels thick with possibility. If the walls could tell the story, obviously, it would be great. Grant, what are those aerial masks I can see? And they were put there for BBC World Service broadcasting. Were they? How brilliant that is. So we're in an extremely remote place, and yet those were transmitting directly into the homes of millions every yes. day for years. Yeah. Pretty much if you're anywhere in Western Europe listening to World Service, that was where it was coming from. Uh, it says something very interesting, doesn't it, about us as a species. I think the fact that we we always try to communicate with each other, and, you know, and sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, yeah. but we're always wanting to interact. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, from an original role of, of trying to spy on the Soviet Union to then broadcasting back to it many years later, uh, you know, that's really a strange sort of paradox, really. Yeah. A lot of good done from those masts. Yes, absolutely. We've just driven past rows and rows of brambles and abandoned concrete blocks and over a little bridge. So why have we stopped here now, Stuart? Well, this bridge is a wonderful vantage point showing you the transition between the grazing marshes, Airfield Marsh, Kings Marsh, and we're now up on this little bridge and we're across a tidal creek called Stony Ditch, which really separates the, the marshes side from this amazing shingle spit, which we're just about to move on to. Exposed, harsh, and really, really special. Coastal vegetated shingle, which is the sort of proper name for the habitat here, is globally rare and about 85% or so of the habitat occurs in northwest Europe and a large percentage of that occurs in the UK. And the two main sites are Orfordness and Dungeness. So we have a sort of responsibility here in a global sense for protecting this habitat. The last time I saw landscape that looked like this, I have to say I was in Siberia. Yes, it has some similarities to tundra in that both are very fragile and a footprint and certainly a vehicle movement on it leaves a lasting impression that takes a long time, if ever, to recover. So it's a similar kind of thing here, different harshness of environment, but nevertheless, there's a fragility here that needs to be carefully managed. And our main way to do it is to keep people walking on nice, clear paths, these concrete roads, so they can see it all, but we don't really want people walking on it. So this is where you're letting nature absolutely have the upper hand? Yes. Stuart, can you just explain these amazing strips and stripes that I can see in front of me? Because there's different coloured stones, there's different lines of vegetation. What's going on here? This is really the most unique feature about Orford Ness. It's a wonderful series 
of ridges thrown up by the action of waves and longshore drift over thousands of years. The waves, when they crash on a shingle beach, throw little stones, and little stones get thrown furthest, so they end up on the top of these ridges. They will just hold a tiny bit more moisture, and that allows some plants to grow. Stripes of vegetation, such as sea campion, sheep sorrel, some yellowhorn poppy, and then as you go into the older areas, you also get something really unusual called a lichen heath. So you get lichens, which people often associate growing on buildings or on trees. Actually, here they grow on the ground. So you've got some special plants here, but actually it's the unity of the landscape that makes it unique. I mean, I've certainly never seen anything like this before. It is a quite incredibly rare thing and it's a fragile one so you can see in front of us some of these stripes have some gaps in them and you can see tire tracks probably dating back to the second world war or the cold war and they're still there so the best thing you can do for this thing is just admire it and let it be one of us to be which is basically a very unusual scarce but fragile habitat <laughs> This is the CP, which if you think of your pea pod plants, it's exactly the right leaf, a little tendril on the end. And is it quite rare, this? Yes. This plant is nationally scarce. It grows in a particular place, on shingle. It really doesn't like too much disturbance, and it will exist just in this little zone, basically a stripe at the back of the first beach, along with a few other specialities. So behind us we've got a plant of sea kale, oh, yeah. uh, related to the cabbage family. Masses of white flowers in the spring, but again dotted down this beach just on this first ridge. And in between we've got this strange little plant called Babington's Orage. Again, a pioneer species on the shingle ridge. And I know the public aren't generally allowed out here. Is there anything special that you're doing to maintain and preserve these species? Yeah, nature is very resilient. It's given a little bit of space and that's really what we need to do is just give it a bit more space, a bit more opportunity and something will, will benefit and that's lovely to see. I like the fact that we've done a lot of interventions here as a species so there's been a lot of abuse from mankind but now you're allowing nature to claim it as its own. This shingle beach is constantly changing as the tide moves pebbles around. It's a kind of evolving shoreline. All along it I can spot rubbish and debris. Here there's some unidentifiable rusting metal. Um, and much of this comes from the numerous wrecks that have occurred here. This is a very hostile coast with treacherously swift tides and with offshore banks that have claimed many lives, many vessels. In 1627, 32 ships were cast up on Orford Ness three in the late 18th century, five in the 19th, and here there's also the wreck of a 20th century trawler, the Faithful Star. The seabed is also thick with live ordnance, following the decades of experimental works. It's all a reminder of the fact that wherever they're from, men and women are matchwood when it comes to the power of nature. This is one of the few sites in the UK where purpose-built facilities were created for testing nuclear weapons. The Atomic Weapons Research Establishment at Orford Ness was operational between 1956 and 1972. There are six nuclear test labs on site, two of which are nicknamed 
pagodas, and I can see why. They look oddly like exotic concrete temples from the outside, but from the inside, they are even stranger. We've come down some very dark stairs now into, I mean, I have to say I've never been anywhere like this before, so I'm finding it hard to read, but it's a big open concrete box. There are these giant metal strips running along the sides of the walls and these kind of metal crosses, lots of piping. Can you just decode this for me? What on earth went on in here? Well, this is Laboratory 4, built from about 1960 to 62. And this was where they conducted tests on British nuclear bomb called WE-177. William Penny, who was in charge of the project, basically was concerned about the safety of the weapon in transit. And so he decided that the best way of dealing with that was to put the weapon and various constituent parts through various environmental controls to quite simply make sure it went off when it was supposed to and didn't when it wasn't. We're in the main chamber where the bomb would have been. So in here they could vibrate the bomb, they could heat it and cool it, they could add humidity. Putting the bomb and its parts through all the rigours it might go through from an environmental point of view between storage and impact. I have to ask the question, is there any danger of radiation? No, the official line is that there was never any radioactive material used on site. But of course, while there might not have been radioactive material, the live bomb was here, and in many cases that was a very large amount of high explosive. There are broken strips of metal juddering in the sea breeze. It's not attractive, this place. Why has the Trust decided to keep it? The reason is that these are incredibly important buildings within a time in our history, the Cold War essentially, and it's important to remember that what we're seeing now looks incredibly derelict, but actually not many years ago these were pristine white coat laboratories, and in fact this is one of very few buildings in the whole world that was dedicated to the development of atomic and nuclear weapons strange buildings, if you like, in a very strange landscape. And thinking ahead, I mean, as a historian, I'm very grateful to those men and women of the past who preserved ancient monuments, ancient temples. Mm. So I suppose in some way that's what you're doing. It's actually not a service to history, more than a service to the future. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. And I think we can describe orphanness as completely unique. There is nowhere in the world that has the combination of things that Orford Ness has. Well, it's very, it's very salutary being in here. I think, I think I'm quite keen to get back out to the savage beauty yeah. of nature. Yeah, yeah. Let's go. There's something both very inspiring and, in a way, very unsettling about this place the development of underwater telegraph lines, the fact that the BBC used Orford Ness to transmit the World Service, talk of our desire as a species to reach out, to connect with one another across boundaries. But then the radar technology, the early military airfields, the atomic bomb research is also testament to the mess that we can make of things. This might be a place of solitude, But it feels as though the ghosts of many very different lives are walking this strange, desert-like shingle. A wild, remote land 
with a savage beauty. Whatever mankind chooses to create, to experiment with, this place is a haunting reminder that ultimately nature will always have the last word. For more information about Orford Ness, including opening times and dates, go to www.nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Orford Ness National Nature Reserve. Thank you for listening. Don't forget this is part of a 10-part series and the other programmes can be found by searching for Bethany Hughes' 10 Places, Europe and Us on the National Trust website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. I'm Bethany Hughes. This podcast was commissioned by Ivo Dorney and was produced by Melissa Fitzgerald. It was a Blakeway production for the National Trust. I'm Alan Power and I've been exploring the secret history of some of the nation's most breathtaking gardens in the National Trust Gardens podcast. Join me as I explore Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent. I'll be discovering how this haunting and world-famous garden was born out of a faded Tudor manor when a famous poet and her diplomat husband made it their home. I can't wait to share it with you, so search for National Trust Gardens on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.